0: we're in a series called steadfast love the strange journeys of hosea and jonah and today we're going to finish the remarkable book of hosea and we're going to be in hosea chapter 13 and 14 so if you could grab your bible and turn there that'd be great we've seen as we've been studying this book much of the book of hosea is really about israel's idolatry So this is a 2,700-year-old book, and it's mainly a critique, a challenge to Israel for worshiping idols. And those worshiping those idols has led Israel into all sorts of other sin and other things that they shouldn't be into. It's led them into injustice or economic oppression. It's led them into immorality or sexual infidelity. And it's led them into independence or self-reliance or political sin, really going, we can save ourselves. Idolatry often works like that. It flows out into other things. You worship someone else as God and it ends up changing your attitude to, yeah, justice in the society and political power and sex and marriage and so on. And I just find it fascinating how timeless idolatry is. You might think, if you're new to Christianity, you might think, what on earth am I going to learn by studying what idols people in the Middle East were worshipping 2,700 years ago? But actually, I think what you find is that those three overriding expressions of idol worship so we put something other than god at the center of our lives and then start it gets channeled out into our economic systems and our sex lives and our power and you think hang on a second that's exactly what happens today idolatry leads to injustice immorality and independence which is basically people serving the gods of money sex and power which people still do and you could look at our world today. You could look at the ancient world. You see people serving mammon or serving Cupid or Eros or serving Mars or Ares or whoever it is. You see people, the great thinkers of 100, 150 years ago. Marx, everything's all about money. Freud, everything's all about sex. Nietzsche, everything's all about power. And even you could look around our city today and you'd say, yeah, our, our symbols, the 10-pound the, the note, the pride flag, the Union Jack or even just the buildings in this city that we're in right now. You'd say, yeah, you look at a cityscape of London and you'd notice huge cluster of tall buildings stretching up into the sky for the pursuit of money in the bank and the city. You go to the West End, you think there's a lot of buildings and neon signs and statues celebrating the God of Sex. And then you go to Whitehall and Westminster and Nelson's Column and you think, yeah, there's lots of buildings thrusting up into the sky going, look how powerful we are. Look at all these people we've conquered. Look at all these great generals or military leaders and you think actually the gods of money sex and power still dominate the and of the city we're in right now so there's something very timeless about what Hosea is saying because Hosea's warning is if you persist in worshipping these false gods judgment will come and Hosea wasn't just saying that to them he's saying it to us as well so that's been a lot of what Hosea has been doing and then alongside that Hosea has been giving a message about the character of God, a message of steadfast love, that in spite of that idolatry, Israel is an immoral wife, and yet God is a faithful husband. In spite of Israel being a wayward child, yet God remains a compassionate, affectionate father in chapter 11. And this week we'll see that in spite of Israel being an idolatrous mess, God the Lord is gonna make him fruitful and bring blessing and abundance to him in his future. So what I'm gonna do is gonna read and summarize the shape and the message of chapter 13 quite briefly. And then we're gonna spend the rest of the time looking at chapter 14, which is just a beautiful, poetic summary of the whole book. we're gonna start, as I say, by looking at chapter 13. I've broken it down in a particular way so you can follow what's going on. and we're gonna read through chapter 13 briefly and then chapter 14. The opening verses of chapter 13 remind us of what Israel has actually done. What what it What is this book about? What is it that Israel's to blame for doing? Uh, and essentially that is idolatry and even human sacrifice in verses one or two. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It said of them, those who offer human sacrifice, kiss calves. So that's what Israel have actually done. Then there's five word pictures that Hosea uses to show the consequences of Israel's sin. Firstly, disappearing smoke in verse three. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. That's Israel's going to be like disappearing smoke. Israel is going to be like destroyed sheep, verses four to eight. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness and the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up, and therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them as a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. There's a play on words in the Hebrew there, because that word lurk is the word shur, and ashur is the word for Assyria. So it's like saying, I will be the lurker, but actually the lurking kingdom is actually the kingdom of Assyria, the enemy nation who is going to come and take them into exile. Then Hosea pictures Israel as a dethroned sovereign, verse 9 9 to 11. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. That is, Israel's going to lose his king and get taken into exile. Fourthly, Israel is pictured as a dead son The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he's an unwise son for at the right time he doesn't present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And then finally, Israel's pictured as a dry spring. Verse 15. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. So five word pictures, disappearing smoke, destroyed sheep, dethroned sovereign, dead son, dry spring, to summarise the consequences of Israel's idolatry. And then finally, the chapter concludes by saying, these, these pictures, have, this is how they'll actually be expressed with exile and destruction in verse 16. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open which is a description of the Assyrian exile. And as I said last week, you can see imagery of this kind of thing happening in the British Museum, as you look at the, the relief wall sketchings and, and pictures of what it is that Assyria actually did. So this is, a, the, chapter 13 is a, a pretty direct challenge to Israel and a summary of what will happen as a result of Israel's idolatry. But happily, that's not where the book ends. So that's not where we're going to end this series either. What Hosea finishes with in chapter 14, which is where we're going to look now, he finishes by giving a beautiful message of hope based on Israel's repentance, which is what the whole book's really been building towards Israel. God loves you. You've been unfaithful. You need to repent and turn to him and receive his love again. And in chapter 14, Israel effectively repents. And as a result, God's restoration comes to the nation. And so in Chapter 14, which we're going to read now and spend the rest of the time on, you get the initial three verses say Israel, describes Israel repentance, repentance, their U-turn, they're turning away from themselves towards God. And then verses four to eight describe the joy that follows, the beauty, the multisensory splendor of God's restoration. And then finally, in verse nine, there's an appeal to say, hey, in light of this, make good choices. So we're going to read Hosea 14, beginning at verse one. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We won't ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon, his shoots shall spread out, his beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow, they shall flourish like the corn. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It's I who answer and look after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever's discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of God. We talk a lot in Christianity about repentance. We've talked about it several times in this series, and we'll talk about it again in the book of Jonah in the next few weeks. It, it appears throughout scripture, this idea that if you really want to lead a fulfilled, flourishing life, you need to turn away from following going after yourself and you need to do a u-turn and you need to follow the purposes of God that's how you that's how you find freedom that's how you find hope that's how you find friendship and union with God it's a really vital Christian teaching and it's the essence of the teaching of John the Baptist whose message is basically repent because the kingdom's come it's the essence of the teaching of Jesus who's again this opening summary of Jesus's preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near it's the essence of how the church, preach and evangelize the world Peter's the first Christian sermon really Uh, Peter's message on the day of Pentecost and the crowd say what should we do and he says repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins it's like a regular biblical theme turn around do a U-turn. Stop going your own way and go God's way. It's like listening to Bonnie Tyler. It just goes on and on. Turn around. Oh, no, no, I want to go up every now and then. I get a little bit of turn around. Oh, no, I want to keep going over. Turn around, right? Or whatever it is. You may not know the song and you may not like it or the way I sing it. But that's the idea. It's like I want you to turn around, turn around, turn around. You're going after your own gods. You're going after yourself. And I'm saying turn around. Focus the opposite way. Look at God, come to him and everything will change. And so that's a biblical theme throughout the whole of scripture. And in a sense, Hosea 14 is not doing anything different. Hosea 14 in the opening few verses is making exactly that appeal. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all our iniquity. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. It's a classic appeal to repent. So in a sense, this is just repeated in the message of many, many other scriptures. But in another sense, Hosea 14 shows us that when we think about repentance, we often only see half the picture. And here's what I mean by that. I think most of us see repentance as something that gets us back up to zero, right? You've done... Bad stuff, which knocks you into the negative. You repent, and as a result, God brings you back to zero. We go one way, we repent, and God brings us back to where we started, effectively, to the, to the baseline. We run up a huge debt, we repent, and God cancels our debt and pays it off, which is true, praise God. But that's the half of repentance that we tend to notice. It's the scrubbing out of the negative. Effectively, you could almost think of it as like negative repentance, not that it's wrong, I mean that it, what it's doing is correcting a negative. Repentance has a negative function, it's the undoing of things. It scrubs things out, it reverses problems, and that's what we think when we hear the word repentance. Even those of us who are not Christians, if we know the word, that's probably what we tend to think of. But what we miss, a lot of the time anyway, and what I think Hosea 14 is talking about is the beautiful reality that repentance is not just concerned with taking away bad things, but with giving us good things. And then we could call that positive repentance. That God's purpose for you in calling you to repent and his purpose for Israel in calling them to repent is not just to remove the consequences of the bad stuff, it's to give them a whole lot of good stuff that he wants to give them, but is prohibited from doing so by his own justice while Israel is pursuing other gods. And so what happens as we repent is we don't just lose the downside, we gain a massive upside because our lives turn and go with the grain of God's purposes rather than against it. See, as long as you're not repentant, you're fighting God's good purposes for the world in everything you do, even if you're not trying to. The things you value the things you treasure, the things you want to spend your time on, the things you give your eye to, the things you give your money to, the things everything you do with your body, everything is pushing against the grain of where God wants to take creation, when you're not repentant. And as soon as you repent, it's like instead of going uphill, you suddenly start going downhill. Or something, an analogy that helped me, uh, when I was on honeymoon, Rachel and I went to we were on honeymoon, we were in New Zealand, actually. It was amazing. And we were in the place where they filmed Lord of the Rings. And uh, what they do is they sort of take you up this river. And when you, as long as you're going up river, it's quite a fast flowing river. As long as you're going up, you're fighting against the direction of the current, right? And then what happens when they get you to the top, they get out these inflatable canoe-like things. They're called funyaks. Uh, kayaks for fun, I guess. And um, they blow these things up and they put you in them and you spend the rest of the afternoon just floating downstream, just shh, And you're floating through the most spectacular scenery with the mountains from the two towers on either side, Isengard ahead of you, just nerding out on this stuff, but just amazed at the wildlife and the birds and the mountains and the scenery. It's spectacular. But what's happening is you're looking around and saying, I am just, right now, I don't have to do anything. I'm not even having to paddle. I'm just going with the the flow of where this river is taking me, rather than struggling against the current in order to get up. And when you repent, something like that happens. say, I've actually, much of the time I've wanted to, but I've been underneath it all, I've been fighting God's good design for creation. And what happens is I repent, I turn around and I start flowing with what God wants to do in the world instead of against it. And this is what's described in Hosea chapter 14. God says, verse four, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. They're gonna experience the lavishness of the love of God, just taking them on in life. Verse five to six, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Notice the sort of imagery here is all drawn from the plant kingdom, isn't it? His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance, like Lebanon. He's like, Lebanon, when you repent, you smell better. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not talking about your physical body here, but it's saying your, your whole life will become fragrant. Your will blossom, they'll be full of life and abundance because now you're lining up yourself and your life with the purposes of God for the whole of creation. Verse seven, they shall return and they shall dwell beneath my shadow. Right? Hot weeks like the one we've had the last few days. Sometimes you just just a relief to get into the shade. And God's saying that's in the Middle East. It's like a lot more, of course. And what and so it's just an appeal. It's saying they will return, and it'll be like they're standing in the shade, they're under my shadow. They shall flourish like the corn. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be white like the wine of Lebanon. And Hosea is really going to town as the prophets regularly do on the imagery of abundance and fruitfulness and flowers and fragrance and wine that characterizes new creation and the world when you are in step with what God is doing, having repented rather than fighting against what God is doing for Israel. That's what flourishing looks like. Dew blossom like the lily beauty like the olive, fragrance, shade, wine. That's what flourishing is. And God is describing a life of perfect flourishing for Israel on the other side of repentance. And one of the, he's saying, really, I have been calling you to turn around, to repent, but when you do, this is how it will be. My anger will have gone, my love flows freely towards you and you will experience all of this abundance and blessing as a result of my commitment to show you favour. In 1543, Nicholas Copernicus, the Polish astronomer, published his theory that the earth actually went around the sun rather than the sun going around the earth, which until then people had thought. And in many ways, it was a a moment of repentance in European thought. And what I mean by that is somebody said, we've been doing this wrong all this time. And I know one or two of us might have had a vague guess this might be what it is, but actually we have been operating for all this time as if we are at the centre of the universe and everything else goes around us and that's not not the case. In fact, something else is at the centre and we are going around the outside. The sun is in the middle and we are not. It's a moment of repentance. It's a turning around from one way of thinking to another way of thinking and it changed everything. It's totally transformative in effectively not just Europe, but in the world as a whole in terms of what we knew and all of the things that flowed from it. Because it didn't just zero out a mistake. It didn't just go, oh, well, we'd made an error and now we're correcting it and now we're back to where we were. It actually meant that for the first time, scientific models and predictions started to operate with the grain of reality rather than against it. And so people started discovering things like vacuums and they started discovering things like gravity and Newton's laws of mechanics and effectively everything that now flows from it in the sense of modern science comes from And all of the technology that is enabling us even to have this message right now and to see and to be part of this meeting as we are, flowed in some way from that discovery. And that moment of repentance when they said, we used to think that we were at the middle of everything and now we realize we aren't. And as a result, we're now all our models flow with reality, not against it. And all sorts of human flourishing became possible as a result of a single act of repentance. The recognition that you and I are not at the centre, but the, our planet was designed to revolve around the sun. And that's the joy of repentance. That's what, it's a lovely picture of what repentance does in the spiritual as well as in the scientific. You and I are not at the centre of all things. We think we are, and we live like that for many many years and then a moment comes when we repent we realize hang on a second I'm not at the center someone else something else the son that is the son of God who loved him loved me and gave himself for me he's at the center I'm not my life is designed to orbit around him he's the source of gravity he's the source of power he's the one to whom I should look And in fact, that moment of repentance when we stop putting ourselves at the middle and start putting God at the middle, changes everything. We no longer find ourselves fighting reality with all our being. Instead, we go with the grain of reality. We repent. And when you're heading in the wrong direction, repentance makes flourishing possible. It makes it possible to live in line with the way the world truly is. It doesn't just cancel massive debts. It gives you abundant credit. It doesn't just remove God's judgments, it releases God's joy. And Hosea finishes with a wonderful statement of the truth that his whole book has been teaching. He says, "'Oh Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? "'It's I who answer and look after you. "'I'm like an evergreen cypress. "'From me comes your fruit.'" And we don't see it it in English, but in in Hosea's language in Hebrew, there's a delightful pun there because Ephraim means fruitful in Hebrew. That's what the name means. And so it's like God is saying, oh, fruitful. I've got nothing to do with idols. It's me who makes you fruitful. It's a lovely play on words. It's like, this is who you are. You have been called. You might have noticed throughout this book, Hosea often refers to Israel with the name Ephraim. That's often the nickname that Hosea uses. And it's partly because he's setting up this, Pun, this play on words. It's like, you're called to be fruitful. That's why I have summoned you. That's why I took you out of Egypt. That's why I've loved you all this time. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to be a vine. I want you to fill the whole world with fruit. And you're looking after idols, which means you can't get that fruitfulness, but that's still what I want for you. Why are you looking to idols? I'm the one where the fruit comes from. I will answer and look after you. I'm an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. What have I got to do with idols, God says they're dead, but I'm alive. They don't answer or look after you, they're made of wood. I do, I answer, I look after, I hear every word you say, I know every thought you think. So repent, turn around from following those gods and come to me. I'm the one who makes you fruitful. The fruit comes from God, not from us. Or as Jesus would say 700 years after Hosea said this, if anyone remains in me, and I in them, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. Idols are dead and they produce death in the end. God is alive and he brings life. And by repenting of our idolatry and trusting in the Lord, we find not just forgiveness zeroing us out, but we find blessing. We find abundance, dew, beauty, blossom, fragrance, wine, fruitfulness. So let's come to him in repentance and faith and put him back at the centre of our lives where he truly belongs. We're going to have an opportunity to respond in a moment for those of us, but maybe some of us who just who don't at the moment wouldn't say we were followers of Jesus, who say actually God has been on my case today, maybe the last few weeks and this is my moment. This is a moment for me to say, I don't want to be at the centre of my life. I don't want to be pushing against the grain of creation any longer. I want to acknowledge that God is at the centre and I want to take my rightful place revolving around him. And there might be others who say, I have prayed that before and I've actually got a lot of Christianity in my history, but if I was honest right now, I'm not living like God is at the centre at all. I'm really living as if something else, me, money, sex, power, maybe something else, is at the middle. And I want to I want God to come and retake his rightful place in the centre of my life. And we're in a moment going to, lead a, going to sing and then we're going to have an opportunity to respond in prayer and come to God. But for now, let's all, let's all pray. Let's all commit ourselves to God that we would experience the abundance Hosea is talking about. Father, we thank you so much for this book and for the just dramatic powerful insights it contains but we thank you so much for the love of God that is always extended towards us and the the challenge that you've brought to us in this series of turning around repenting of putting ourselves at the center and reorienting ourselves around you. Lord we pray would you empower us by your spirit to live lives with Jesus at the center of it all. We pray Lord would you be in the middle, would you be the center of gravity, would you be our God, not idols, not other stuff, not me May you take your rightful place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.